Welcome back to Leaders of Color. I am your host, Sarisha Iyer, the founder and executive director of Leading in Color. On today's episode, we have Uswa Esan with us. Uswa is a political science and communication student who is passionate about community building, equality in public policy, and rights for women of color. She came to Canada as a young immigrant from Pakistan at the age of nine. She struggled to adjust to Canadian life and endured a lot of taunting about her thick accent, quote, weird clothes and smelly food. Growing up in Canada, she felt conflicted about her various identity markers, gender, culture, religion, race, and found it difficult to remove her own perception of her identity from the perception of others. As she got older, Uswa realized that her internal conflict was a commonality in many people of color. Women especially had their identities presupposed onto them. More significantly, Assumptions about their identities were manifested into microaggressions, stereotypes, and even racist remarks. Feeling like something needed to be said, Uswa gave a TEDx talk in 2018 titled, Your Survival Guide on How to Talk to Ethnic Women. In this ironically titled talk, Uswa shed light on the struggle of many women of color to take charge of their identities and to fight back stereotypes. Her talk aimed to empower women of color to speak up and remind others to be careful with their words and assumptions. In the months after the talk, Uswa noticed a larger problem in society, the shallowness of allyship. She constantly noticed that the word allyship being equated with retweets or shares of popular motivational stories on social media, rather than action to stand up for those who society deems as, quote, lesser than. Uswa saw the current discourse about allyship as one-sided and insubstantial. There was a minimal accessible training on how to be an ally, a lack of discussion about what allyship looks like, and a general disinterest in digging deeper on why allies are needed in society. Uswa's want to evolve allyship led her to create the organization Ally Squared in 2019. Ally Squared envisions a world where people are empowered to be their own ally, as well as be there for others in real, tangible, and impactful ways. Uswa truly believes that community cohesion is important in a world where there is so much polarization and wariness of difference. Being an ally is the first step towards a safer, happier, and stronger social environment. Welcome to the podcast, Uswa. Thanks for creating this safe space for me. No problem. So tell me a little bit more about the work that you do with Allies Squared um, and what your organization is all about. So I am in my last year of university and, you know, anyone who goes to school realizes that it's almost like a microcosm of the social problems of basically our country. And in this, I realized that while I go to school in Ottawa, which is a bigger city, and it's continuously surrounded by amazing nonprofits and activists, and obviously all the politicians on the Hill, it's also full of people from different parts of Canada, which come with different levels of acknowledgement of diversity, understanding of why what diversity means, and I found myself in a place where I was very much confused about how I fit in in this whole space. And I saw that with other people as well. And so my work and my activism is always trying to make sure that everyone has a strong sense of self and can communicate that sense of self without feeling like they're going to be looked down upon or that they won't be able to access opportunities or that, you know, something in society, whether it be a tangible thing or whether it just be something like, you know, going home and feeling exhausted because everything that everyone said to you was filled with an 
underlining of a racist remark or ignorance or just something that makes you feel uncomfortable. And so I did a TED Talk in 2018. And the whole point of this TED Talk was to try and say, hey, world, you're doing something wrong with women of color and you're treating them wrong and you're making the decisions for them. And it's time that you let them make the decisions for themselves. And in that, I mean that a lot of times women of color are seen either as just that color or as seen as needing to become white. And so I think what a lot of us women of color struggle with is this idea that we never get to decide. So we never get to decide how much the color in our skin matters to us or the type of hair we have matters to us or the how ethnic our name is and things like that. And it's always communicated to us. So someone refusing to learn our name or the pronunciation of our name, that communicates to us that our name should not be important. Someone constantly talking about where we're actually from or where we're originally from or where our parents are from or whatever, you know, communicates to us that that's the most important thing they're seeking when they're talking to us. And so all of these small things, they might not be as obvious as these big systematic remarks or actions that happen, they still cause us to create complexes that make it really difficult for us to navigate ourselves in the world and our self-perception, you know, keeping tied to what we want to be. And then I did this TED Talk and I heard from so many amazing women about how they felt and the differences in how they felt. So I hate being called exotic. I hate that word so much. But I have friends who love the word exotic and love when people call them exotic and makes them feel special. And so understanding that that's different. It's not just then women of color. It's not just women. It's people of different gender identities and people of different immigration status. It's people from different religions and, you know, whatever these big identity markers that in society right now we're really focusing on, whether it be for the good or the bad, those things are so important these days. And sometimes they're not important in the ways that they should be important. And so my TED Talk led me to create an organization and it's called Ally Squared. And the reason I named it that is I wanted to change the way allyship is looked at. And I wanted to do something about how we as society can normalize the idea of allyship. And it doesn't have to be something that those lefties, like they call it, you know, like to do, or those activists like to do, or just women of color, people of color, people of certain thoughts and beliefs and looks have to do. It has to be something that it's such a normal thing. You should be there for your neighbor. You should be there for your friend. You should be there for the person at the coffee shop you don't know. You should be there for your professor, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so you've talked a little bit about the motivation um, behind the work that you're doing and why you decided to do it. Would you say that the TED Talk was a turning point that made you really push to go and create Ally Squared? Or was there another significant moment that really is when you decided, okay, I'm making this choice to go out and do it myself because nobody else is. Yeah, so a couple things happened, the TED Talk being one. The second thing that happened was that I did the TED Talk and then nothing changed, well, a lot changed, but nothing changed in my immediate life. So people were still talking to me in microaggressions. People were still constantly deciding what my identity should be. And I felt very, very alienated. I was surrounded by people who I loved and who loved me and who were there for me. But, you know, when I was alone at a coffee shop or doing groceries or walking down the street, I still felt like 
I did not have the mechanisms to stand up for myself in those situations. I did not have the strength to do so. And also on an institutional societal level, there was nothing there to hold me up. So we all heard about that equal voice scandal. I applied for that program last year or the year before, 2018. And last minute, I decided to apply for a different program, which thank God I did. But when I saw the whole thing come out in August, I kind of had a very horrible meltdown because we always think that those are the types of organizations, those big ones, those government funded ones, those ones that aren't constantly struggling for money, the ones that, you know, have finally done something in, you know, when you're looking at it from the outside are the ones there for you. And I sat there and I was like, if an organization that's the whole point of the organization is supposed to be for women and is supposed to encourage women and women's representation and in such real tangible ways that you want women to be MPs, you want women to speak up, you want women to use their individual experiences and legislate because of them. If those kinds of organizations turn out to be racist or turn out to look down on, you know, certain types of women and turn out to literally do the things that they're created to avoid or to stop, who's there for us? And that realization really did break me. And I realized that those can't be the type of organizations that we're constantly, you know, putting up on pedestals, because if we're putting them up on pedestals, then we're never going to be able to really see what the work they do and the impacts of the work they do. We're going to have to stop looking at organizations and stop relying on those things. Because at the end of the day, like, we shouldn't have to rely on organizations to help us navigate society on a day to day basis. Like we need people to help each other. And we need ourselves to help ourselves. And those things can't just be these big top down things. They have to be bottom up. And that starts with community. And that starts with understanding that I am going out in the world. And I am doing this for the good of a person that looks like me or a person that doesn't look like me or any person out there that also leaves their house feeling a little scared about how people are going to treat them. And so the little last piece that made me be like, okay, I'm going to do this is I was at this conference, this amazing conference from this organization called Girls 20. I'm part of the Girls on Boards program. Um, for any young woman interested, their applications go out usually every year at the end of October, November. But I was at a conference for them and we had a discussion about being there for one another as women and the privilege that comes with all of that and the privilege all of us have and the unequal privilege we have. And so I'm a Canadian citizen. I have one of the strongest passports in the world. That comes with so much privilege compared to someone else I'm going to school with who I'm sitting right beside in a lecture hall who doesn't have Canadian citizenship and is paying lots of money, probably paying more money than they can probably afford to sit in that same lecture hall and hear the exact same lecture. Or, you know, someone who's not straight or someone who is below the poverty line or someone with hearing disabilities or someone with mental health issues. Just because I'm a woman of color doesn't mean that I get to be like, okay, cool. Um, everyone has to be my ally and that's it. I have no responsibility towards everyone. So I think it made me realize that I need to check my privilege a lot more often than I really do. And that also me having that privilege means that I also need to be an ally and that this term ally 
can't just be for white people like we always talk about or it can't be for you know people who are literally like bleeding out full of work that they constantly do for their communities and they have nothing for themselves and no one for themselves so it has to be for us in the middle who have different identity markers that society believes isn't the top tier ones but we still have a lot more privilege than, you know, people in our immediate community even, and we need to be their allies as well. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So very much along the lines of, I guess, understanding that as people of color, and in particular, I guess, in our situation as um, as South Asians, that we still hold privilege in this country. Uh, we hold privilege financially, we hold privilege econ- um, like politically, we hold privilege in a lot of ways that perhaps other people of color, especially Indigenous folks and Black Canadians, don't necessarily have access to. And we need to learn also to be allies to folks who are like, we're not always the ones who are who are being affected. There are other people who we benefit from their oppression. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not just in our immediate communities. I, I mean, I moved here when I was nine. I have family in Pakistan still. I have family who definitely can't ever come to Canada and don't have the money for it, don't have the opportunities for it. And even though they're literally my blood, they don't have my privilege. And so understanding that there's people like us with our color and with our hair type and all of that with our eyes and all of that in other parts of the world that also don't have our privilege. So what are some of the challenges that you face while doing this sort of work? Where can I start? Um, People don't think it's a big deal. And I understand that because people are like, okay, you know, you're talking about this stuff. You're talking about people being mean to you at a cafe shop, but like there's people out there who can't access jobs or there's people out there who can't pay for meals. And I completely understand that. But I think part of allyship is getting to know that community and getting to know the people around you and their struggles. And let's just say that person's at a grocery store and someone's being rude to them and you stop and you talk to them for a little bit and then you realize the bigger issue that they have in their life and then you're creating connections and that can lead to bigger things. Or, you know, just that one part of someone standing up for them was strong enough that the rest of their day is going to go a lot better or that their sense of self is going to be validated or, you know, whatever it may be. I think we need to grasp the idea that these small microaggressions really do build up. And um, I always think about this story. So, I grew up in Mississauga, which is quite diverse, but it's also a lot of diaspora communities stick within each other. And, you know, you can see that in the high school I went to, where the more popular people were usually white or, you know, usually or not usually definitely grew up in Canada and were born in Canada. And everyone like there was the brown kids over there and the Asian kids over there and the white kids over there. And just there's so much stereotypes attached to everyone. And... I came to university and I remember making friends with, you know, white people and calling my cousin up crying, being like, I'm so scared that these people aren't going to want to talk to me anymore because they're going to realize that I'm brown, which is crazy because you can look at me and you could tell I'm brown or like realize that I'm not exactly like them or I wasn't raised exactly like them or my parents look different than them or things like that. And I was terrified. And now I look at that situation calling my cousin up crying because I wasn't white and I thought that you had to be white to 
have a certain type of friendship or have a certain type of way of people thinking about you. And I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, like that is such a horrible thing for me to have thought at one point. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that thought. And it just, it scares me so much because there's young girls and young boys and young people out there thinking that right now and rubbing their face, trying to see if the color on their skin will go or like straightening their hair every day or things like that. And it's scary because we're in a world that's supposed to be as the most progressive it has been yet. And really at the end of the day, like where really are we? Totally. So that's a lot of heavy stuff to have to deal with as, as a part of such a challenging environment to be in doing this sort of work. Where do you get fulfillment from in it? Honestly, the work itself is so fulfilling. When I'm doing this work, I feel like that 12-year-old me with that strong accent that's gone now, but you know, that super strong accent or like 12-year-old me who did not dress like the other girls her age or things like that would look at me and be like, oh, this is the kind of person I'd love to hang out with. I want to be that person. I want to be that person that the young girl I used to be wants to learn from because I really do want to learn as much as I can and grow as much as I can with my community and my community not being just South Asian people, my community being my Canadian community, my school community, my work community, my relationships and my partners and my friends and literally any form of community you can think about. My community thousands of kilometers away in my community, the block across the street. And so we've talked a lot about your community and the way this impacts you. But what are some opportunities you have in terms of ways for youth to get involved in the work that you're doing? So the thing that makes me the happiest is when I get an email or I get a DM on Twitter or a message on Facebook with someone being like, hey, like, this is a cool thing you're doing. Or hey, like, I saw this thing that you did. Like, can we talk about it? And I really like to welcome that. And I welcome that on a rolling basis. And I like to think that I'm very accessible. Um, my Twitter is public. It's Aswa xsn I think or Aswa.sn. I'd love for young people to just reach out to me or to tweet at me or if they don't want to tweet at me publicly to DM me or to email me at squared at gmail.com. But also we always have opportunities coming up, whether it be our events, whether it be sharing stories online. So a big part of Ally Squared is that idea that you don't want anyone to feel alone in their, you know, in this feeling of alienation. And so what we do is we invite people to come and share a story of one thing that happened in their life, a small thing that was someone doing a microaggression towards them or them witnessing that or them being an ally towards that or trying to be an ally towards that. And the main story essence being an instance where an ally was needed but was not there. So um, I invite young people to talk to me about those stories and see whether they want to write something for our website or um, reach out to me. I think on a general basis, that's really what I'm looking for from young people. Awesome. And so what are some future projects or programmings that you have upcoming that they can get involved with? So 
we plan on having a couple of events coming up, one being the very important anti-oppression training. So our aim is to have that on a rolling basis, to not have it as just a one-time thing. We also will continue to have speakers and panel events and a lot of learning opportunities. So people who are like, I want to be an ally, but I don't know what that means. Or, oh, I already am an ally and I want to share how I am one with other people and things like that. We create those spaces quite often, usually on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. Um, And so I would encourage everyone to check social media or check my social media especially because I will be constantly sharing about that. And just reach out. Reach out and there's always something that is going on that I can let you know about. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Uswa. It was wonderful getting to hear about you and your organization, Allies Squared. And to everybody listening, thank you so much for tuning in to Leaders of Color. We hope to hear from you. Um, Let us know what you liked, what you didn't. Leave us a rating and a comment. And we'll see you next time.